Okay, has anyone heard of an American Express credit card? Heard of it? I owe them everything after Christmas. I did not know this till recently. They have different cards, and they're all based on a color scheme, right? So the first card you can get is a green American Express card. What that means, if you have a green American Express card, the normal one, it means you work really hard and you don't get paid much. So here's a green card. That's what it means. <laughs> the second one after the green card is a gold card, the gold American Express card, which means you're not a moron. Here, have this card. All right, thank you. The next one is the premium card, which is single points are for losers. I get double points on my gold card. The next one after that is platinum. Platinum means when you call, somebody answers. And when you go to the airport, you can get these secret little rooms because you've got the platinum American Express card. But there's another one, and I did not know about this one. It's called the Black American Express card. Who has heard of the Black American Express card? Okay, so the Black American Express card is an invite-only card. You have to be invited to apply for a black card. If you want to apply for a black card because you've been invited, you're going to cut them a check for 10 grand just to apply for it. Doesn't mean you get it. That's just for the gift of applying for it. And then to keep the card, it costs you $5,000 a year to keep the card. So that's 15 grand before you spend a cent for the American Express black card. In order to keep it, you need to spend about $250,000 a year minimum on that card. Is that crazy or what? Here's a picture of one. Do not write that number down. <laughs> I took notes in church today. I'm going to the mall. Praise God, right? <laughs> now, there are people, it is their bucket list goal to get an American Express card. Now, why? Because when you pull that thing out, Everyone's going to know you just wasted 15 grand for the color. <laughs> Look at me. Look at this card. I'm like, save your money. Give me 10 grand. I'll paint it black, man. We'll save a lot of money. It'll just seem like the same to people, right? So people pursue this because they know when they pull it out, it is a signal to everybody else. Oh, he is great. He's got the American Express black card. Isn't that in all of us, though, at some level? Don't we all have something we want to pull out that kind of proves our greatness? Well, today, that's what we're going to be talking about. Jesus addresses this exact issue, the desire in humans to be great. So you could really say the message is, what American Express card would Jesus have? Right? What would he have? Which one? So there's two stories, and they're paired together brilliantly by Mark. The first one is Jesus' passion. The second one is the disciples' passion. Spoiler alert, they're not the same thing. What Jesus' passion is about and what the disciples are passionate about are not the same thing. And during this, Jesus gives a lesson that, man, if you will digest it, it's hard, no doubt, it's life transforming. So Mark chapter nine, you can turn there. We're in verse 30. They went on from there 
and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is Jesus's passion. And he is walking now. We've been following him. He was up by Caesarea Philippi, way up in the northern part of Israel. He goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, probably way up in the northern part of Israel. And now he's beginning to travel south towards Jerusalem. It's his final walk. And he's talking to his disciples when they're walking, because whenever he stops, a crowd forms. And he doesn't want the crowds to know what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. So he's telling his disciples about what's going to take place in Jerusalem. Hey, I'm going to be grabbed. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be murdered on a cross. I'm going to die. Now that's a tough conversation, is it not? Have you ever had a loved one, someone you admired, family member, tell you that they're terminal? That they have three months to live, six months to live? That's a hard hard conversation. So I can kind of understand why the disciples are like, uh, afraid to ask him, kind of confused by this. They don't understand it. Yeah, I can get that. That is hard. But what are they missing? And after three days, he will rise. They're missing the resurrection. That's huge, isn't it? So I have a good friend, a guy that actually picked up my family uh, in 1975 in Eureka when Carlotta Ranch, the hippie commune that my family was staying at at that point, he picked us up from there when it got shut down by the government and drove us up to Grant's Pass. His name is Bob Emery. Since then, he's got married and had kids. And if you know Bob Emery, he is a sweet man, awesome guy. But what you may not know about Bob Emery is that back in 2009, January of 2009, two of his sons were driving to RCC one cold January morning. They hit some ice. They got an accident, and both of them died. Just brutal. So he's, we've had conversations about that, and he's led some grief groups here. Just love him. Well, he went, he said, to tell one of his old, old buddies what had happened to his boys. He said it was the most interesting conversation he's ever had. So he went down there. He met with his friend. Friend didn't know anything about it. So he starts to tell them about his two sons that had died. And after he told them about the two sons that had died, this friend just jumped up and said, praise God, that is so awesome. And Bob was like, what? Do we need to fight right now? Because what are you saying? And then the man went on to say, man, they're in eternity. They got there first. They passed through it. Wow, that's so awesome. And Bob said, I've never forgot that because he was the first man I met that truly believe in the resurrection. That this life is just a door. It's just chapter one. And death is how we turn the page of chapter two. He's like the first guy that really, really believed it, that had staked his life on it, that actually talked about it. How amazing is that? Do you and I, do we really believe that we will rise again? Or do we miss that as well? And because of that, we're petrified and afraid, just like the disciples, of death. 
death. Because, right, Peter rebukes Jesus. No, you're not going to die. You're not going to go to Jerusalem and die. That's how petrified they were of death because they did not believe in the resurrection. So now they're afraid and they're misunderstanding. And I get all that because there's a hopelessness to death. There can be. Like, I still struggle with that. I'll be called in when someone is put on hospice. You know what that means? Hospice means, hey, there's nothing left. We're no longer treating the disease. We're managing your pain until you die. And even in those moments when I'm talking to somebody, they're still in me. I'm like, hey, you never know. God can touch you. Jesus can heal you. Because I can't give up hope. It's just, it's so hard in those moments. So I get this. I get the disciples like, mm, So because of that, they jump to a different subject. And what's the subject they jump to? Well, let's look at it. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, making their way south. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. I bet they did. <laughs> For on the way, they had argued about one, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> this is so classic. And he sat them down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the disciples' passion. A little different than Jesus's. So Jesus is talking about the event of history that God would become flesh and not take the easy way out, be betrayed, be denied, be abandoned by his closest friends, be beaten, put on six false trials, and then crucified and slaughtered. The event of history. And what are his 12 students doing? Are they taking notes? Are they paying attention? Are they dialoguing back and forth like, hey, wait a second. Like, what, what is, no, what are they doing? They're arguing which one of them is greatest. You know what that's called? It's called being tone deaf. It's not getting your circumstances, right? So it'd be like you going to Dornbecker's Children's Hospital. Anyone ever been there? Man, that is a hard place to be. I've gone there once. I tell you what, you just walk around and your heart is broken. It's sick kids with really serious problems. It'd be like being there and bragging about how great of a quarterback you were in middle school. And if coach had only put you in, you would have won the state championships, like a classic Uncle Rico moment. Like that's tone deaf. Like, are you kidding? Don't you understand the circumstances? Don't you know what's happening right here? They don't. They don't. So Jesus sits them down. Hey, sit down. What happens when a teacher does that? I got an important point to make with you. And he does make an important point. And here we are, the beginning of 2022, when maybe you've made some New Year's resolutions and it's only day nine. Maybe you've kept your New Year's resolutions, which is awesome. 
And there's nothing wrong with evaluating life. I do it every single year. I look forward to December 31st, 2022, and I ask myself, hey, what do I want to see on that day? I think that's a healthy thing to do. Jesus now is going to give us, hey, do you want December 31st, 2022 to be a glorious day where you're proud of the last year? Do you? I think he gives us how you and I are to manage greatness biblically, right? So notice something. Notice they're arguing. Notice they're arguing about who's the greatest. Why would they do that? Let me try to ask it by asking the opposite. Has anyone in here ever argued that they were the worst at something? Probably not. Anyone make a um, New Year's resolution to be the worst? I make a New Year's resolution to be the worst plumber. I want no toilet to flush. I make a New Year's resolution to be the worst electrician. I want every house I wire to burn to the ground. I make a resolution to be the worst student. I want to get a zero on every single assignment. Straight F's are not good enough. I want straight zeros. I want to be the worst pastor, whatever that would mean. I want to be the worst secretary. I'll never answer the phone and I'll misspell every single word. I want to be the worst garbage man. I want no garbage in my truck. I want it all on the people's driveways. I want to be the worst FedEx driver. I want to break every package and deliver everyone to the wrong address. No one does that. Why? Because even the most broken human, even the most hurt person, still has in them a desire to be good, to be great, to matter, to be significant. That all of us, I don't care what's happened to us, there is a deep need inside of us to hear from people, you're good at that. You're making a difference. You matter. Thank you. That is in every single human heart. And here's the reason why. Because in Genesis 1, we were created for greatness. Adam and Eve, here's the planet, rule and reign be great, be significant, do things that are impossibly cool. I've given you all these resources in there. That's chapter two. Look at all these resources. Take, make, do something, be great, be significant. We need that because there's always whispered in our head because of the fall, there's always whispered in our head, you're inadequate. You are no good. And the antidote to that is, no, good job. So I don't fault these guys for arguing this way. No way. That's in all of us. What was their mistake? Here's the mistake we make with that. We start comparing ourselves. They were arguing with one another who was the greatest, right? That's the problem when it comes to ambition and desire and wanting to do great things. The mistake that the human makes is then comparing ourselves to other people. And don't we do this so often? Men, Have you heard of one-upmanship? Here's what that is. It's making you the center of every story. So people start talking about hunting deer. And what do we do? You hunt deer? Those are pets. I hunt elk. 
Oh, you hunt with a gun? I hunt with a bow and arrow. A bow and arrow I made myself from Brazilian hardwood that I harvested on a missions trip to the Amazon jungle. Oh, you hunt with a bow and arrow? I hunt with a Swiss army knife. I jump out of a tree on top of them and stab them. Oh, you hunt mammals? I hunt pterodactyls. I bite their heads off, right? That's what we do. Every one of us, right? Everyone knows someone like that. If you're saying, well, I don't know anyone like that, it's you, stop it. Right? There's a term for it now. It's called Facebook depression. And it's this way that we look at social media and when then we compare our lives to what we see people portraying on social media. And because we don't look as great as them, we become depressed by it. Oh, but here's the problem with that. It's a curated image. No one takes a picture of themselves when they first woke up in the morning. If they claim they took a picture of themselves when they first woke up in the morning, it took them 30 minutes to get ready for the picture of themselves when they first woke up in the morning, right? No one takes a picture of the overflowing dishes. No one takes a picture of the, I call it the Maytag mountain of laundry. No one does that. So the reality isn't there. We see this curated image and we start comparing ourselves to them. We think, oh man, I'm not great enough. So what Jesus does here is brilliant. He takes this normal desire that every single one of us has, and he, it's, it's not a bad desire, right? Jesus does not say this. He doesn't say, you're arguing about being great? Knock it off. Be happy being a loser. Grovel. Take all ambition and get rid of it, right? Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, that's not Christ-like, that somehow desire or ambition or achievement or wanting to be really great, somehow that's not Christ-like. And that has crept into the church. Do you know that? But it's not at all Christian. That's actually from Buddhism. Because if you've studied Buddhism, you know this, that Buddhism says there's this evil in the world. They recognize that. And they say the evil is caused by desire because we have desires. What those desires are, it pushes us to do evil things to get our desires. So they say the cure is to get rid of desire. If you can just rid the human of desire, then there's no evil and everything's good. It's called nirvana. And so they have the eightfold noble path to nirvana, getting rid of desire. That's not all Christian. No way. Desire is not a bad thing. Jesus does not say he don't have desire. He doesn't say that at all. What happens when someone actually loses desire, loses ambition? What happens to them? Man, they turn into a zombie. They live off the government. They live off other people. They're takers, not givers. That's not healthy. So that's not what Jesus says. He does not scold these guys. What does he say? He says this. If anyone would be first... Okay, you want to be first? Right? It's not a scolding of desire. Desire is good. 1 Timothy 3.1. If any man desires the office of bishop, elder, whatever term you want to use there, he desires a good thing. That's a good thing. And then it gives seven verses of what you need to do to accomplish that good desire. Proverbs are full of ambition and desire. Dad's telling sons how to actually walk out ambition well. Paul, the superhero of the New Testament, 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, just says, I beat my body into subjection. I don't run zigzagging. I have my eye on the prize. I want to be great. I don't want to be cast away. I don't want to be disqualified. Right? So there's tons of Bible verses that tells us desire is good. But there's a balance. Because the Bible is honest about the human condition, that we can take desires and they can get overheated. The Greek word is epithumeo, an overheated desire. If you've been at Edgewater for any time, you know I've talked about that over and over. Good things all of a sudden exploding. And the human, because we are created with such a great capacity to rule and reign, we can take any desire and it can get exploded. Do you know that? So I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, about three, I decided I wanted to buy a motorcycle. And I wanted to buy myself a motorcycle, my boys a motorcycle, so we could do something together. So at first, I was like, I just want a 450. That's all I want. I don't care the year. I don't care the brand, just a 450. But then I started talking to my buddies. And they're like, oh, dude, do not buy a carbureted 450. You have to buy a fuel-injected 450. Because if not, every winter, you're going to have to do things to it. Every spring, you're going to have to clean it out. So don't buy a carbureted 450. Buy a fuel-injected 450. So I'm like, okay. So I start looking at fuel-injected 450s, where the price just doubled. I'm like, oh, that's more expensive. Then I start talking to another friend who's like, bro, you got to get traction control. I'm like, I don't need traction control. He's like, you have not ridden a motorcycle in 25 years. Do you want to get left in the dust? I'm like, I do not want to be left in the dust. I want to be great. I want to be the first motorcycle rider. He goes, then you need traction control. I'm like, okay, I need traction control. So I start Googling that. Well, now the price doubled again. And this other guy's like, dude, you have got to get programmable traction control. I'm like, I don't need programmable traction control. He goes, yes, you do. I said, why? He said, two words, whiskey throttle. I said, what is whiskey throttle? He said, these bikes are so powerful now that when you start to give them gas, what happens is that bike starts to launch away from you and then your body just naturally clenches onto the handlebars even more, but your body is moving backwards so you give it more throttle and you end up in the ER. <laughs> so you need programmable traction control. I'm like, really? So I looked online at YouTube, whiskey throttle. It is hilarious. <laughs> Do it, just not now. It was really good. So I'm like, okay, well now the price tripled again. I'm like, oh man, that's expensive. I'm going to need to sell one of my kids. Charity's not going to like this, right? One desire, right? Went from a ah, simple little bike to, oh, 10 grand, like that. That's the human condition. So Jesus is going to temper this thing that's in all of us. And what he says is brilliant if you'll allow it into your heart. He's not taking away greatness from us. He's not saying, don't be great. He's saying, this is the route to greatness. This is the guardrails because all those things, they can't actually deliver what you want, but this will deliver what you actually want. So this is what he says, three things. Number one, be last. It's a mindset. If anyone would be first, he must be last of Remember, the context is how to be great. That's the argument, how to be first. So Jesus says, here's what you got to do. 
If you're going to stop this comparison thing, if you're going to stop this route that is unhealthy, this epithemeo thing, then number one, have this mindset be last. And I think here's how it works out. Let me give you my life. So I'm a pastor. I will listen to other pastors preach. For about 10 years, one of two things would happen to me when I would listen to another pastor preach. The first thing that happened would be this. I am so much better than him. Goodness, I kill it, right? The second thing was, oh, they are so much better than me. I'm horrible. I'm going to quit and become a garbage man. Both of those are unhealthy. One leads to pride, the other leads to despair, right? So that's what happened to me for a long time. That's unhealthy. This mindset cured me of it. This is what I mean. So I think what Jesus is driving at is this. He gives this parable to his disciples. He says, imagine a guy throws this feast. And the feast back then, it was like a horseshoe table. The head would sit at the top of the horseshoe the most important guy, the host, and then next to him would be the most important people all the way around to the bottom of the horseshoe table, and those would be the worst seats. So Jesus said, when you go into a feast like that, don't go up and take the best seat, the first seat next to the host, because here's what can happen to you. Someone more important than you can enter, and the host will look at you and say, hey, scoot down a bit, and you're really embarrassed by that. Instead, when you go in, take the last seat, the lowest seat, because the worst thing that can happen to you is nothing. And the best thing that can happen to you is, hey, bro, don't sit down there. Come up to this seat. Be elevated. It's a mindset, right? It's bigger than just going to a feast. It's the way that you approach life. I'm approaching life by being the last. So now, for the last six years, when I listen to a message, I go in as, I'm the last. Not I'm the greatest, because when you go in with the mentality that you're the best, then you can't learn from anyone else. You don't grow, you don't get better. But when you go in saying, actually, I'm the last, and whoever this is that's teaching the Bible right now does some things better than me. And so I'm gonna try to learn from this person and how God has gifted them and the experience that they have, I'm trying to learn from them some way that will help me and benefit me and grow me, and then my mind is on. Instead of when I go and I'm the greatest, my mind is off. And in those moments, I grow and get better and better and better. It's transformed me. It's this mindset, be the last. And then you're not threatened by people anymore. That gifted people just make you like, wow, God created such giftedness in you. That is amazing. I'm so glad to be associated with you. I'm so glad to know you. I'm so glad that you are a gift to the world. Thank Jesus for your giftedness. You're not threatened. Rather, you rejoice with those that are gifted and talented. It's a whole different way of life when you say, I'm the last, not I'm the first. That this is what I think about the world now. And I have this saying, and it's this. The world is a university. Everybody in it is a teacher. Why? Because I'm last of all. So make sure when you wake up, you go to school. This is the route to greatness. Not I've arrived, not I'm arguing about that I'm better than everyone else. Rather, I'm the least. I'm the last. 
And no matter who God has out there, I can learn from them. And what I found is people are amazing. Do you know that? Like if you'll take a little moment and get to know somebody's story, they've done the most amazing things. And each person like adds to me and helps me and, and completes me in ways like, wow, God, that's amazing. Like I did a service for a guy on Thursday, a memorial service. And I didn't know him at all. So the, I met with a family on Tuesday and he's the most amazing guy, Guy Harala, just an amazing guy. What he did through 86 years of life, I'm, I can't wait for eternity when I get to meet with him and chat with him when time is not a problem. He's amazing, right? So we're sitting there and we're talking, and I'm just laughing. I mean, he is a, just a character. Uh, and then they said this, he said, well, he retired and, and the last job he had before he died, the last thing he did in his, in his retirement was he was a stripper. And I was like, whoa, I don't know how to eulogize that. Um, uh, he was in the fashion industry. Uh, how do you do that, right? So they're just laughing at me because I'm like just shocked. And they're like, oh, he stripped copper out of old electronics. I'm like, oh, thank you. Okay, we can do that, right? It's so funny. People are awesome. And we have this mentality of humility, knowing that every person can teach you, you actually grow. It is the route to greatness. That's number one. Be last of all. Number two, be a servant. That the kingdom has a new measure of greatness. It's being a servant. And I probably mentioned this a half dozen times. I'll mention it a half dozen more. There is a giant difference between serving God and being God's servant. Do you know that? Serving God is I get to control it. I don't feel called to that. No, I don't want to do that, right? Because I'm in control. I'll serve you when it's convenient. Being a servant is something totally different. And it took an event in my life to teach me this lesson. So seven or eight years ago, uh, we had thrust on our family foster care. And I was already busy at that time. I was in seminary at that time. I was teaching every Sunday and every Wednesday for the most part. So just this, had this drumbeat of fullness. Five kids that were younger at that time in my house, just a small three-bedroom house. And all of a sudden, we went from seven people to nine people in a three-bedroom house. And I was just like, mm, I did not like it. I was kind of resenting it. Actually, I was really resenting it. I felt like, God, really? How much more do you want of me? Right? Like, come on, give me a break. My wife, on the other hand, brilliant. She is my hero. She just dove in, did it brilliantly. I was just mm, grumbling. Well, about that time, I happened to read Luke 17, 7 through 10, which is a story, a story about a servant that goes out, works the fields all day. An all-day job for a servant would have been from 6 in the morning until 6 at night. So he finishes a 12-hour shift, comes home, walks in the door. The master is seated at the table. What happens then? Does the master look at the servant and say, bro, you look exhausted. Let me get you something to eat. Oh, no. The master looks at the servant and says, I'm hungry. And the servant immediately goes in the kitchen, fixes dinner, serves the master, cleans it all up. Why? 
because he's a servant. That's a giant difference. Man, that story so convicted me because I felt like God asked me this, Matt, do you want to serve me or do you want to be my servant? And if I was honest, I wanted to serve God. I want to put in my eight or 10 hours and say, okay, God, me time now. Leave me alone now. I want to do me now. I did enough of you. Now I'm doing me. Well, that's serving. That's not a servant. A servant says, whatever you need, master, I will do it. And when I finally just kind of crammed down my own, whatever it was, and said, okay, God, I am your servant now, and embraced what God has for me, I can't tell you how it's changed me, how it's just made life so much richer and better. That foster care, this thing that I so resist and like, ah, has been one of the greatest trainers for my spirit of anything that I've ever gone through in my life. That we brought in this baby addicted to opioids, Harry, when he was brand new, we got him from the day he was born. Man, my heart has been so changed by that baby. Why? When I finally said to God, okay, I'm here to serve you. I don't, don't get to control this thing. I'm your servant. And what you say in that moment is, I am trusting you as my master, that you will bring into my life the things that will break, make me great. And it may not be the route that I thought, foster care, whatever it is, but I'm trusting you because you're the master and I'm here to be your servant, not to serve you. That's number two. And then thirdly and lastly, he says this. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me receive a child. And this one is so brilliant. Because ministering to kids isn't glamorous, right? It's not sexy ministry. Like everybody wants to be Tom Brady's servant. Yeah, I think God's called me to serve Tom Brady. Of course, right? Well, kids, that's not it. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous, right? It's hard. There's no good return on your investment with kids. Do you know that? Look at your bank account if you're a parent, right? On top of that, you do all these things for your children, you feed them, you clothe them, you do their laundry, you take them for rides, you take them to school, you take them to soccer practice and basketball practice and football practice and swimming practice and, and whatever it is, to friend's house, you have their friends over, they thrash your house, they go home, right? And what do you get from your kids? They're not necessarily the most thankful creatures on earth. You might get a handmade Mother's Day card. Here you go, here you go, mom. They, they made that morning, like rushed it out. But why do you do it? Because they need you. Because they need you. And there's a real cultural reason to this. When you read the disciples, how did they respond to children? Were they warm and kind to children? No, what were they constantly saying? Scram, get out of here. Go play in a cow stampede or something, right? They weren't kid people. Here's why. In that culture, it was men, women, and kids. Kids were subhuman. Be seen but not heard. Stay out of my hair, right? That's the way it was. So here's, it, it's much more than just, hey, receive a child. This is saying to the disciples, the people that you do not value, the people that are subhuman in your head, 
receive them. And every person has a subhuman category in their head. A group of people that, no, nah, they're not really valued. Nah, I don't really like those kind of people. We all have that category. For some, it might be rich white dudes. They're terrible. For others, it might be Antifa or boomers or millennials or whatever it is. Fill in your, whatever it is. We all have that category. Jesus says, go minister to them. If you want greatness, the people that you do not value, the people that you want to ignore and get away from, make them your mission. That's the crucible for greatness, Jesus says. Right? How countercultural is this? Who does this, right? I mean, this is radical, radically different. This is a route to greatness that no one's getting a bestseller out of. But I'm telling you, it works. And you read church history, people like Mother Teresa, this is exactly what they did. People like Dr. Paul Brand, one of my heroes, that's exactly what he did. People like George Mueller, that's exactly what he did. People like St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. People that have actually done this, and we remember their names today because they got it. This is the route to greatness. Be last, be a servant, and minister to those that you do not value, you personally have a problem with because that's the crucible for greatness. So Jesus is reversing Everything that we've been taught about greatness, that greatness is about status and success, right? The American Express black card. I'm successful and I have status. Check it out. And Jesus is saying, nope. Meaning and purpose are the way to greatness. And the only way you get meaning and purpose is being last and being a servant and serving those that you don't value, Right? And here's what's amazing to me. Study successful rich people, people that have gotten really, really rich in life. Like another billion dollars doesn't matter to them. What do they always end up doing at the end of their life? They're not going for success and they're not going for status anymore. What are they going for? Meaning and purpose, their cause. All of them adopt some kind of a cause because they've got everything you could possibly want in life and it was a mirage. And they say, actually, I want meaning and purpose. And did you know this? Rich people, very rich people, are four times more likely to commit suicide than your middle class people because they've sucked the marrow out of life and they found it did not satisfy them. It's Ecclesiastes chapter two, a king that has everything and says, I hate my life because we were designed to be significant. And that significance does not come through status and success. It comes through meaning and purpose. And so Jesus is rerouting the believer saying, this is the route. This is the route. And the only question is, do we believe him? That's the only question. Do we believe him enough to say in 2022, I will embrace that? And then I can evaluate December 31st and see the greatness. Do we, do we believe Jesus? Now I've dabbled in this. There's a whole bunch more I can do. But every time I have, every time I've taken a step toward this, toward greatness, what I found is it's dynamic in ways I can't explain. 
That's what I found. So as we take communion today, here's my hope. That we believe Jesus. That this isn't just a sermon where we're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That we really believe Jesus. This is the route to greatness. Being last, being a servant, and receiving those we do not value. That's my hope. And so Jesus, today, as we hold the ultimate example of what you said, that you lowered yourself, God, becoming a man, not just a man, a servant, not just a servant, a servant in a occupied country under the thumb of a dictator. You didn't come rich or privileged, you came poor and betrayed. You were last, but now your name is first, that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, that at your name every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. How may we learn from you? May we embrace this path in 2022 to greatness. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup of cleansing. Father, I have failed to appreciate the giftedness in other people. Trying to argue that I'm better. Trying to compete where it does not matter. And it kills me. Forgive me. Cleanse me from that attitude. May I be able to rejoice with those that rejoice. May I see your giftedness and your power in other people and be amazed at you. May we all do that. May we all be mirrors reflecting back to you the glory and majesty, not hiding, not trying to take other people's glory, but simply reflecting back to you. So cleanse us. May we be students in this incredible world that you've given to us. Servants to those that we find the least. And may we hear from you those beautiful, brilliant words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's drink together. Amen. So we have prayer up front if you need prayer for anything. We have baptisms out here if you want to be baptized today. Great day to be baptized. Would you stand for one final song?